Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. And those of you who are gathered online, I am gathered, uh, grateful that you are here as well. Um, before I get rolling, I want to thank Gina so much for preaching last Sunday, right? It was awesome. And so in that spirit, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we gather together in his name. <clears throat> and uh, by his word, we know that he is present because we have declared that we are gathered in his name, which is a good thing. Um, <clears throat> I may have said this before, and bears repeating, uh, because it's just true. I do not claim to have uh, all of my faith and all of my discipleship completely worked out, nailed down, um, or even sorted through. Okay, can I just be honest about that? I don't claim, I don't, I don't make that claim at all. Uh, what I do claim is that I do have a set of skills that when applied to the scripture, helps draw some meaning out from the text. Applying that meaning to my own life, well, that's another story, right? I mean, we all have this uh, ability to um, read the text, to learn from it, to learn from preachers, to learn from music, to learn from each other, all those kinds of things. But actually applying those things to our, our lives sometimes is a challenge. And, and I, I just want to be honest about that. In short, I think I'm on, on this following Jesus journey just like all of you. And in it, um, I think in the, the, the best way to describe it is we're kind of all in, in this thing together. Although I think some of you are much further down the path than I am in some ways. Um, but, but we are. We're in this thing together. And there are plenty of elements about the Christian life and the Christian faith that, that I still need to integrate that we all all do, and as, as a church, we're trying to pursue the presence of God both individually and corporately, learning what it means to actually live daily with God, okay? And the passage that we're gonna be talking about today speaks directly to that. That's, that's what the setup is for. It's talking about um, really what it means to live daily with God, because I think sometimes we inadvertently think think about living weekly with God. Does that make sense? Because sometimes when you're, when you're showing up for Sunday um, on church and it's like, okay, I, I, almost like it's the refueling station, I refuel for the rest of the week. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a difference between living weekly with God and living daily with God. And, and what we're trying to do is live, live daily. Frankly, I'm gonna be honest, I'm trying to learn how to live like moment by moment. You know, I would settle for hour by hour, <laughs> but you know, moment by moment, I think, that happens, and, and the kind of the um, full transparent disclosure, this is one of those exciting passages I'm still trying to figure out. And I'm gonna tell you right up front, I reserve the right to learn something new or learn something more later on, okay? So this is my understanding as of today. It may change as, as, uh, as I learn more, as hopefully I grow, and God forbid, mature. So. Um, we're going to look at this together and see what we can learn. So I'm going to invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 21 and 22. Um, just a, a kind of a short little section here. So uh, 2 Corinthians 1. And if you don't have your Bible or Bible app, that's fine. I've got it on the screen for you. You can read it there as well. So let's read through this. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and he is with um, some of his, his homies, 
Okay, he's with his friends and they're writing this letter to the church. He says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand in, in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. All right, two very simple verses. This is the uh, NIV version of that. So after Paul greets the church in that early part of chapter one, he launches into an explanation of his plans. And in his mind, he's attempting to simply reconnect with this church. Because remember, this is one of a series of letters. In fact, we call it 2 Corinthians, but it's very likely the third letter that he wrote to um, the Corinthian church. Okay? One, two, sorry, fourth letter. Fourth letter that he did. Maybe the fifth letter too. Fourth letter. Okay? It's a short verse, but there's a lot of stuff packed in here. And for those of you who are Bible scholars, you're really going to dig this because we're, we need to pull this apart to try to understand it. At least I know that I did. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to be honest too. You know how I feel about these things, but the NIV translation on this one leaves a lot to be desired. So um, I had to do a little bit of work and I, I want you to see a, a, a slightly different perspective here, okay? He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. It's awkward to read, okay? So the NIV translators took the Greek verse and they put it together in a way that would make sense to us. But I want you to see a more direct translation because the, it, it's a little different. He who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Okay, that's how it reads. Verse 22 who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. All right? Now, this is the passage that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull apart because this is it's a little more awkward to read, but it's highly accurate as far as, as translation goes. So however you translate this, whether you use the NIV version or one of the other ones, that's cool. Paul is outlining for us four things, four actions that God takes for the benefit of believers, and you and I get to share in this too. All right, This is really important for our discipleship, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good idea for kind of us to pull us apart and try to understand it a little bit more. Um, so the first thing that he does is he who establishes us. And um, <laughs> the Greek word here, uh, it's uh, babayu. And I don't know about you, but several years ago, there was a Saturday Night Live skit where he had two airplane attendants and they were saying goodbye to everybody. Buh-bye. 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 And somebody would come up with a complaint and they would be like, buh-bye. 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 I don't know. That's what goes through my head. I don't know what goes through your head, but that's the kind of stuff that goes through mine. You're welcome for all of that. Anyway, the idea here is in, in Greek is to establish or better yet to confirm, okay? That's, that's what's at play. And so when, when we read through this, it seems to me that Paul says God's first action, remember, because I think there's a series of actions here. The first action is to le- legitimize us ultimately. And this is what I believe happens at the point uh, we believe in Christ and we, we begin our journey with him. God establishes us. 
you know, when you say yes to Jesus and you're, you're going to give your life to him and you're going to follow him, he then looks at you and, and establishes you in Christ. Um, if you're kind of theologically minded, uh, this is the point that we would call justification. You are justified in Christ. Um, in kind of, I guess, my own sort of thinking, this is the moment when God says, uh, when we say yes to him, he turns around and says yes to us. He's, he, he says, this, this one's mine. That's establishment right there. And, and, and what we're learning now is what that actually means with the balance of this verse. But he first, the first thing he does is he establishes us in Christ. He legitimizes us. He justifies us. He gives us that type of credibility. When you choose to say yes to follow Jesus, God in turn turns to you and says yes to you. Let that sink in. Because I think sometimes we, we fall into this trap as, well, you just got to say yes and say the sinner's prayer. But there's another side to the relationship. And that side of the relationship, God is saying, yep, that one's mine. That's it. They are established. Secondly, it says that he has anointed us in God. <clears throat> anointed us. A Greek term here, for those of you who are interested, is creo. Not creole, that's different. you got to go to New Orleans for that. This is Creo, okay? Creo. And it means literally to anoint. Surprise, surprise. Or another word is besmear, which I thought was kind of a cool term. To smear something, besmear. Now, this idea of anointing is not common in American vernacular, and I think it deserves a certain amount of explanation. And I want to talk about this um, because we often talk in our triangle, those of you who who know about our discipleship triangle, one of the things that we, we talk about is there's that relationship at the bottom of the triangle between you and God. And by the way, that's establish, right? That's babeo. But then he empowers you to live the Christian life, and that's what this is. You are anointed. You are creo. Does this make sense? So this is very basic to our understanding of what discipleship actually is. And Jesus actually used the word and if you don't believe me, that's okay. I'll show you. Jesus went to Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 4, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read in the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has, what? Anointed me, Creo, to proclaim good news to the poor. And of course, what he's reading here is actually Isaiah 61. Here's verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Boy, I'm glad to hear that. To proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the whole verse. Well, most of it. But notice the term is anointed. Now, here's the interesting thing. Isaiah didn't speak Greek. He spoke Hebrew. And in Hebrew, there's a word, it's called mashach, which is really fun to say, especially if you've had a little bit too much dairy. Mashach. Kind of gets rid of it back there, okay? Mashach. So if you have creo in Greek, you have mashach in, in Hebrew, okay? That's, that's the word. Here, I'll show it to you. So creo in Greek, mashach in Hebrew. Both means anointed. Now, the term in the Old Testament is actually used quite frequently. Um, and most, most notably, if you remember um, 
the last couple of summers, we've been talking about King David in 1 Samuel. Uh, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, Mashach, this is David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Okay, so this is 1 Samuel chapter 16. Meshach, he anointed him with oil. So he poured oil on a head. And there's a whole series of, of uh, historical pieces of this puzzle that oftentimes kings were anointed by oil for, uh, over their heads for a particular reason, and that was I kid you not, to get the bugs out. Because a king shouldn't have bugs in their hair. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how true that is, um, but I've read that. I've read that in a couple of different places. I think it's, it's actually fascinating. But you anointed them with oil in order that they would be different. Now, there's another, another passage here. This is in Isaiah 21. This is really interesting. They set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Get up, you officers or warriors. Oil the shields. Meshach, anoint the shields. Now, from, from the passage, what we're, what we're understanding is that there's a great feast or a celebration, and so the warriors would go and oil their shields, not necessarily for combat, but for service but for show. Treat them special. Shields were an important thing. Oil the shields. And and so one of the things that we we can understand from both of these Old Testament um, perspectives on on Meshach is that Paul is not about, he's not not necessarily talking about a, a God anointing us to royalty per se. However, he is anointing us or setting us aside for special purpose. Do you see that? The king is anointed. He is different. He is set aside to be king. But you can also set aside certain things, anointing them for special service. Is this making sense? Nod your head so I know that you're awake. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting set of terms. The word that we probably would use these days is consecrated. Those things are set aside for a specific purpose. So not only are we established or legitimized, we are each set apart for his service at the same time. That's what Paul is saying. He has established us and has anointed us for these things. Now understand, God establishes us, that means he accepts us, not to just be put up on the shelf, we're not to be shelved, but we're anointed for use. All of us, every one of us. And by the way, this is why God um, gives us his spirit and his spirit gives us spiritual gifts so that we can be of service. Does this make sense? Hmm. It's exciting to have those gifts, but we have to understand consecration comes first. So God has established us and has anointed us. He also says sealed. Who also sealed us. Now what does this mean? This is very, very strange. This took me a while to to try to understand. I'm not sure I've got it all together. The word here is, I kid you not, 
I, I wrote it down so I got it right. Sfragizzo. Sfra, sfragizzo. Now, last night, my family was over hanging out with the Farkas family, and uh, Gina made a bunt cake. You know what a bunt cake is? It's a cake that has a hole in the middle. And every single time I see a bunt cake, I remember that scene in, in uh, my big frat Greek wedding when the Millers bring over a bunt cake and they're trying to explain to, to uh, uh, main character's mom, who is very Greek, what a bunt cake is. And she's having a hard time pronouncing the word bunt, bunt, because there's the N-D-T sound, bunt. It's a bunt, bunt cake. Do you remember this? Right? Okay. Now, this is really funny to me. And the reason why it's funny to me is they're having a hard time saying bunt, but they can say this word. I don't get it. How do you do that? You have an S-P-H-R, sfragizzo, for crying out loud. You should be able to say bunt. Give me a break. I don't get out much, so this is exciting for me. Okay. And the idea here is to seal or to mark something. It's tough to say, and it's not the easiest thing to define because it's another word or concept that is not necessarily used in American language, at least regularly. And what's so interesting to me is that Paul actually uses it a couple of times in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 4, he talks about this idea of being sealed in some way. In the Old Testament, um, the word is katam, katam, again with a sound, right, katam, and it's a very old word. We actually find it in the book of Job, which, by the way, if you don't know this, the book of Job is the oldest material in the Old Testament, very ancient probably comes out of more of a Bedouin tradition than it does out of a a strictly Jewish one. It is ancient, ancient material, which just shows how important that book is to our understanding of of God because even ancient people had an understanding of of who he was and, and what his character was. But we find that word even in Job. Now, think about old letters. Um, I, I found this picture because I thought it was really good. But that is a sealed envelope, right? There's a piece of wax that's on the corners of it. Uh, this one is you know, a little more uh, uh, ornate. Not ornate, that's the right word. It's a little more secure because they actually put, put string on it. That looks like it's probably airmail. I don't know. But there's a seal. There's a wax seal on it. And it's only supposed to be um, broken by the intended recipient uh, um, of it. Uh, this is a really good understanding of this, this idea of, of a wax seal. That's, that's very helpful. Um, a sealed piece of correspondence. And the idea here that we need to understand is that when something is sealed, it's a mark of ownership or authenticity. Okay. So when, when God says you are sealed, we're talking about a mark of ownership or authenticity, but also there's this idea of secured or um, it connotes this idea of safety as well. When you are sealed, you, are, you could be sealed in somewhere, right? There's a certain amount of, uh, security is probably the best word for it. Each of us is marked by God in a divine or a spiritual way that brings some measure of protection. 
But I also think there's something else interesting at play here, is that the idea also connotes a certain amount of secrecy. Okay, so you're given um, an envelope that is sealed. It's kind of like for your eyes only. There's a secrecy to it, which I think is really important. Because in, in my mind, <clears throat> your calling is for you alone. So when God seals you, you are given a calling, some type of calling in your life, and that's only for you. It doesn't mean you can't share it with someone else, you can't tell them uh, about it, but your calling is for you. And very often, not always, but very often your actual calling is related to your deepest source of pain. So there's a secrecy to it because God understands what that pain is, but God is also in the business of redemption. And so when God gives you his calling, when he seals you and he gives you that calling and there's that point of pain that's in your life, there is something redemptive there. There is something. Now, that's a very scary thought. That's why we have to lean into the fact that being sealed is also secure. Does this make sense? So don't be afraid of whatever that thing is because God has given you, he has sealed you and he has given you a calling that is for you and for you alone. You get to do that on this earth. You get to do that. And it's very often a redemptive thing that's sourced in some of your pain. Your calling is for you. It's okay to tell others, but it's for your guidance. It's for your development. It's for your growth. It's for your discipleship. That's all for you. Okay, then we have this last, this fourth piece. Who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So the term here is araban, pledge, or deposit, or advance. It is a commercial term. It's used in trade, which I think you probably understand. It's like when you, when you buy a, a house or a car and you put down a sum of money, it's a down payment. And, uh, or if you put something on layaway, are we talking about layaway these days? I mean, you might as well because um, it's coming up. Christmas is coming, right? We only have about five more weeks before we're into Advent. I don't know if you know this. Christmas is coming. But if you have layaway and you put something away to lay it away, you have to put money down on it. We call that what? Earnest money right? I'm going to put down a sum of money either in a house or, or something. That's Araban. It's a commercial term. I'm going to put some money down saying this is, a mez- this is um, in, uh, in good faith. This is um, you know, something that, that I want to do. So the idea that's behind this is that there's some now, but there's more to come. You with me? There's some now, but there's more to come. I'm putting some of the money down now, but there's more to come. That's earnest money. That's pledge. That's Araban. To use kind of modern language for us to understand that. There's some now, but there's more to come. So the presence of the Holy Spirit that, that God has given us, 
Um, is a down payment on what? What's it a down payment on? It's the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit in your life is deposited in you as a down payment for the kingdom when it comes in full. So there's a little bit now, but there's more to come. So it's, the, it's, it's really about the kingdom. So let's be clear here. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and reign of Christ. He tells us and we respond. That's rule. That's reign. When we agree to the things that he's telling us to do and we respond to them, that's the kingdom of God beginning to take shape. It's, it's nothing less than that. The rule and reign of Christ. And by the way, location doesn't matter. The actual physical location doesn't really matter. This is why in the Lord's Prayer it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Okay? So when we talk about the kingdom come, your will be done, those two things are the same thing. People ask me from time to time, I'm just trying to figure out what the will of God is. What is the will of God here? I can tell you. You can write this down. You can bank on this. The will of God is always the same. It's the kingdom. Always. The will of God is always the kingdom of God. He's attempting to bring this thing to earth. We're not trying to get a whole bunch of people into heaven. We're trying to bring heaven down to earth. That's what we're here for. Heaven to earth. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So really it doesn't matter what the geographic location is. The kingdom is the rule and reign of Christ wherever you are. And, and by the way, <laughs> When you pursue the presence of God, you make time, you attempt to connect, you listen to, to him, you are pursuing his kingdom, and you must understand this. This is the key to the whole thing. It all starts in your heart first. You want it to happen in a group? Cool. But it's got to happen in your heart first. And that's why we, we talk about this, this idea that you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit as a pledge a little bit now, there's more to come. It starts with you. It starts in the individual, people uh, individually listening and responding to what God, what God is saying. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. I'm not going to guilt you. I am not going to bludgeon you with the Bible. I'm not interested in any of that. That's not my intent. There is no shame here. But I do want to encourage you to, to start listening, to, to just simply carve out a couple moments and go, God, if you've got something to say to me, I would like to hear it. And then if you hear something, even if it just seems really gonzo or bonkers or whatever, write it down. Put a date on it because you never know. You never know. Somebody once told me that the first uh, rule of leadership is to define reality. You have to know where you are before you can, you can go anywhere else. First rule of leadership is always define reality. What soup are we living in right now? Because then you can make some plans, then you can have a vision, then you can move in a new direction. But as I read through 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, I have this impression that Paul is laying out for us a new reality. This is what your reality is 
reality is. You have been established. You have been legitimized. You have been given a new identity in Christ. You have been anointed. You are consecrated and set apart um, for, for impact in the world that's around you. You have been se- sealed and secured. God's got you. And not only does he have you, he has given you some type of specific calling. There's a purpose for you being here on this earth. He's not abandoning you. He's trying to encourage you to live in a particular direction, one that he has made you for. And on top of it all, the new reality is he has filled you with his spirit. Yes, he wants to be with you and live with you and empower you to do things that you can't do on your own. I don't know about you, but I just find that incredibly cool. This is really important stuff. This is Paul defining this new reality. We are all of these things, established, anointed, sealed, and filled with his spirit. And so when we collectively and individually pursue his presence, we are beginning to live into this new reality. And I find it really interesting because there are other places Paul talks about when the presence of God, this Holy Spirit that's within us, certain things mark us. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, right? That's the fruit of living into this new reality. And it's characterized signs and wonders and prophecy and faith and leadership and mercy and helps and all of those gifts that the Spirit gives to us. Those are the things that we see when we begin to live into this new reality. So Paul is very, very clear. Here's what happens. We like terms in, in Western theology like justified and sanctified, and, but Paul is a little more pragmatic I think you are established you are anointed you are sealed and you are gifted in a way to do all of these things for the kingdom of God and when we begin to do that when we begin to live into that new reality all of a sudden this thing comes up called the kingdom and people treat each other differently and we see miracles occur, and we see knowledge before things actually happen, and we begin to get the sense that God himself is in our midst and guiding us and leading us, and that is the type of kingdom that I want to see, and I think that's the one that's promised. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. (laughs) I feel like I say that every week, but every time I open the word, even though I feel like a tourist most of the time, I have to be honest, God, (laughs) I just come away realizing how good you are to each one of us. And Lord, my prayer is that for every person who's gathered here today, that you would speak to them just clearly about what it is that you've actually done, that we wouldn't simply um, come to church on Sunday and live weekly, but rather we would learn how to live daily, to live hourly, to live moment by moment in this new reality that we are fully and completely established in you, that we are anointed for some type of special service. 
Lord, that we are sealed, we are secure, given our own unique calling. Mm. And we're not on our own, but your spirit is put inside of us, that you live with us to help us become all that you've created us to be. Lord, I don't know which part of that is speaking to to anybody, but I I suspect there are some people who, yeah, I get the fact that I'm established. I, I, I chose Jesus a long time ago in Sunday school or whatever. Maybe I was at church camp. I don't but they haven't figured out that they are set aside, anointed for service. That, that you have chosen them. You chose them. And that you have given them a calling and it may be something that they're unaware of. Lord, I pray that you would begin to reveal that to them. For others, it is something they are running from. And Lord, I pray that they would stop and they would listen. And still others are fully engaged in it. Oh God, I pray that you would just supercharge that because we desperately need more people living into their calling. And Lord, I know that there are some here who they believe all of that and they're waiting for some type of empowerment to do it. Oh God, would you speak to them as well? Holy Spirit, I invite you to come. I invite you to speak to each individual person. We are here collectively, but we are collectively individuals, and you have something for each person. For everyone who's watching online, Lord, you have something for each of them as well. Spirit, do the work that only you can do while we sing, and while we praise. And I just want to invite anybody, I'm going to be down here um, on, on my right, on your left in the corner. If you want to pray about any of this stuff, come on down. be happy to do that with you. Lord, be glorified in our midst. And I pray with a, a humble gratitude that we get to do this. And I'm so grateful for it. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Everybody said,